Good day, folks, and welcome to A Freedom of Ideas. This is your host, Corey DiBiase, saying hello very briefly before we have an also very brief episode, an epiphenomena episode on the language of command, which is going to drill just a little bit deeper. Actually, maybe it's going to drill a little bit to the side of what we talked about last time, just to talk about another aspect of the way the English used native Indian languages in their imperial overlordship of India and the Indian people. So again, not exactly what we talked about last time, but just exploring this issue of language uh, a little bit more than we had previously and talking about another way that the, the manipulation of the civil society, of the overall tapestry of civil society on the part of the English, some of the sort of unforeseen impacts that that had on the imperial relationship between the English and the, the people of India, and just the overall enterprise of imperialism and the ultimate effect that it had on the minds of actually both the people of India and the imperialists themselves. But we'll get into all that. Part of the reason that I'm stopping by to say hello in this little uh, informal pre-episode chit-chat here is that the last time I stopped by to say hello in an informal pre-episode chit-chat, I forgot to tell you the thing that was the entire purpose of my stopping by. I don't really remember what I talked about, but I didn't tell you the main thing that I wanted to tell you, which is that if you just can't get enough of the sound of my voice and my various goings on, well, fantastic news, because uh, I did a guest spot, and absolutely so such a fun guest spot with the great folks over at the Ravel podcast. So I did a wonderful episode with them, had a great time. So that was Ravel episode 95 that I was a part of. Uh, great time, talked a little bit about uh, quantum, which was a lot of fun, talked about process theology, talked about whether or not uh, God changes. So, you know, a theological discussion, which is what the folks over at Ravel do, great fun. They're absolutely brilliant. I highly recommend it. Now, some of you might be saying, though, and, and I want to, you know, I, I, I want to give this this sort of uh, counter narrative. It's it's due. Some of you might be saying, you know, Corey, actually, we don't need, you know, to, to hear a lot more from you. Great that we hear from you as much as we do. Love this. But, you know, it's it's just the right amount. We don't need any more. OK, fair enough. Fair enough. But I think I can still suggest a, a, a great next step to you, which would be that then you can go listen to any other episode of Ravel that doesn't have me on it, because they're all brilliant. They're all just fantastic. Uh, great show, great folks. So really, really highly recommend that. And of course, thanks so much to Josh. Thanks to Stephen. Thanks to the, uh, all the great folks at Ravel. And, and Stephen, of course, as we've, we've talked previously about the, the Highline Podcast Network here in Montana, which is just one great show after another. So I really recommend not only looking into Ravel and No Normal People, the, the, the two shows that I've been lucky enough and uh, had such a great time being a part of. Really, I'd recommend checking out that whole network of, of shows. So thanks again to, to those great folks for just a fascinating time, a great conversation. One little extra minor thing, though, uh, you know, just since I'm here and since we're doing this, this notion of epiphenomena, we talked about it briefly last time. I, colloquially, you know, in, in our day-to-day -day speech, to the extent that we use, as we said, the extent that we use the term epiphenomena, we use it sort of informally to, to basically mean something, something that just doesn't matter that much, that we don't need to really think about, that doesn't factor into whatever conversation we're having. So if I say, 
Bill has a tractor. Bill uses that tractor to uh, to 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 feed the cows. That tractor often breaks down, which means the cows don't get fed on time, and the tractor is red. Of all those things, of all those different facts, the fact that the tractor is red, of course, that's basically epiphenomenal to the nature of this conversation. Not that important. It's not that consequential. But my question, if we switch over to our more absolute, philosophical, or, or not more absolute, it's not, a, a, it's not a sliding scale, if we switch over to an absolute philosophical view of this term epi epiphenomenal, meaning if something is absolutely epiphenomenal, it means that that thing must not have any impact whatsoever on anything else. It truly is totally inactive, totally unaffected, totally inconsequential, non-impactful uh, entity or event or what have you. So my question to you is, can there be such a thing as a truly epiphenomenal, well, truly epiphenomenal thing? Now, you know us, we around here at, at Freedom of Ideas, we're, we're naturalists, that's our fundamental approach, which means in this context that, first of all, if something is made of either matter or energy in the natural world as we understand it, well, if that's the case, it simply cannot be epiphenomenal, right? Because every piece of matter, every piece of energy has some impact on not every other, but on some other piece of, of existence, either matter or energy, and that kind of iterates outward. So cross off the list. We can't have something be epiphenomenal and essentially be a real thing in this, you know, in the physical world as we understand it, right? So, okay, then we could move over to the realm of thought, but here again, as naturalists, we say that, you know, it, if I'm having a thought, even if the thought is just this totally disconnected, and, you know, we could have a whole conversation about, is it possible to, for me to have a thought that doesn't affect other thoughts as thoughts, but on a more basic level, if, if I'm thinking something, that means that it's having an impact on the, something is happening on the electro, electrochemical level if I'm, ha if I'm thinking about something. So regardless of whether or not the thought impacts any other thought, still, at the very least, the fact that I am thinking it with my uh, you know, naturalist physical brain here means that it's having an impact in the real world, means that it cannot be epiphenomenal which means that not only must something that is truly epiphenomenal be something that does not exist in the real world, it also must be something which we've never considered, never imagined, no one has ever thought about. So then the question, my question to you is, would you agree with that read? To be absolutely epiphenomenal, does something need to essentially not exist, not even so much as, a, as something that has ever been imagined. So, for example, dragons are no longer epiphenomenal. Unicorns are not epiphenomenal. All kinds of imaginary things are not, uh, simply cannot be epiphenomenal anymore because they've at the very least affected things that we've thought about, right? Things that we've perceived. So yeah, so that's the question. Can there be anything else, anything else that is truly epiphenomenal, absolutely epiphenomenal, but which exists in any way, shape, or form? Is there any category of thing 
that could be truly, absolutely epiphenomenal other than those things as we've identified that simply do not exist and which have never been imagined in any way, shape, or form. But with that goofy little question out of the way, I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, it's not, uh, well, as with all epiphenomenal episodes, it's not one of the sort of necessary building blocks of what we're going to be talking about going forward, but it is a sort of another strand in how all this process of mind changing occurred through the institution of imperialism. And another way that imperialism and this process of mind changing not only influenced individuals who were subject to imperialism, not only influenced the imperialists themselves, but fundamentally basically influenced the the overall nature of civil society as it existed and as it was manipulated in the context of imperialism. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy our next episode uh, later this week when we'll dig even more deeply into Cone and we'll talk about, um, well, essentially we'll talk about the way uh, law was manipulated under imperialism in India and some of those unintended Foucauldian kind of consequences that occurred based on English manipulation of Indian law. But again, I hope you enjoy the episode today and we'll be talking to you soon. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. A quick epiphenomena episode for us today. There was a piece in the essay by Cohn that we looked at last time on language and the use of language in India that I thought was really important but didn't quite fit with the flow of what we were discussing last time. This isn't quite the quote-unquote Foucauldian point that, uh, that Cohn was making with language. This is more of a if you will, a bit more of a blunt point about the way that language was used in Imperial India, essentially as, uh, well, I'll use uh, Cohn's terminology, which is the language of command and the impact that that ultimately had. So very short episode, uh, just wanted to kind of throw it out there. I thought it was an interesting add on to what we've been discussing. So one of the, the aspects of the use of language in India that we didn't really have time to get into last week was what Cohn calls the, again, the language of command. Specifically, this refers to the fact that so much of the way that language was used in India by the English was specifically and explicitly for the purposes of giving orders. It wasn't for understanding, it wasn't for the purpose of making conversation, it wasn't intellectual exploration, it certainly wasn't even uh, just passing the time and getting to know people. Rather, it was simply to issue orders to menials. This was a huge piece of the way native Indian languages were used by the English in India. To hear Cone talk about this, as we will do very briefly, we can hear how this largely recast the relationship between the Indians and the English as one of consisting of really absolutely nothing but the master and menial relationship, essentially turning both the English and the Indians into two-dimensional characters to one another. So you can further imagine the kind of impact this is likely to have on how English rule is conducted in India and how both the English 
developed their understanding uh, understanding of the Indian people and how the Indian people's perception of their own place in their own country, and certainly in relation to the English, uh, must have been affected. Now, as we said last time, language in India was complex. There were a lot of different languages, first of all, which is complicated. Their uses varied pretty widely depending on the circumstances and the, the context. The languages themselves included contextual subtleties that were totally unknown to the relatively straightforward linguistic world of the English. At least, certainly it was straightforward to them, being their native tongue. The ramifications of this fact are, are numerous, to say the very least. To begin, it had a sort of practical impact on how the English sought to communicate with the Indians. Because of these complexities and because of how the English used a faulted racial lens, as we've talked about, to try to understand the Indian folks over whom they were exerting control, pretty much all the practical communication between the English and the Indians on a day-to-day -day basis, the standard interactions, became a matter of simply de declarative command. So, faced with such a complex system of numerous different languages, it was decided that for most of the English in India, it would suffice simply to know how to communicate with their servants. Young English aristocrats who were new to India would be commonly issued a phrase book, akin to what we might see in a kind of practical language guide for tourists. It consisted of simple, direct words and phrases meant to help you get by, but certainly not meant to foster genuine communication. And all of the phrases included were literally the language of command, meaning necessary combinations of words and sounds designed to simply get menials to do the task you wanted them to do. So here's a short passage from Cohn describing this particular use of language. Quote, Gilchrist provides the young Englishman in India specific rules on how to talk with Indians, all of whom in his work seem to be servants. The European must begin by learning how to get the natives' attention, and this is accomplished by the command soon o. This, Gilchrist tells the reader, serves the function of putting the servant, quote, on his guard. The commands issued should be as simple as possible, he advised. Do not say, give me a plate. Just utter the command, plate. The European should always use the imperative plural. We want such and such. The asking of casual questions should be avoided, since the Hindustani is, quote, apt to conceive in the most innocent of queries only so many traps set to catch him in some villainy or other. Unquote. Now, of course, the tone of all this should rankle us in general, right? And, I, and by the way, the tone is not coming from, from the, the author of the piece, Cohn. It's, it's coming from the, the folks he's quoting, this, this Gilcrest manual that was put out. But, it, you know, again, as I say, this should rankle us. We don't want to imagine this notion that these guidebooks are being issued, put out there essentially to teach young foreigners how to treat an entire country full of people simply as servants. But consider this in a broader context of how it affected the overall understanding of Indians by the British, and, for that matter, the British by the Indians. If this is the entirety of your mode of communication, then the entirety of your grasp of the native Indian character, their personality, their ideas, their motivations, all of that is whittled down to interactions based solely on giving orders. 
And of course, this changes how people are perceived. Again, both the English and the Indians. But Cohn has far more sources to detail, of course, how the English came to view the Indian as a consequence of all this. Amazingly, as you somewhat heard in that quote we read, amazingly, the leading characteristic of how the English thought of the Indians was with resentment. Resentment at a people who seemed constantly to be, again, this is purely from the English point of view, but they seemed constantly to be shirking their duties, not showing sufficient respect, always looking for ways to confound their quote-unquote master's good intentions. Now, of course, this is common enough in the inherently poisoned relationship that we see whenever a, a people cease to relate to one another as uh, essentially whole comprehensive people, but essentially seek to re reduce one another to caricatures where one person's, uh, one person, or I should say one people's character is recast as simply a response to the needs and the prejudices of the other. But when that relationship is further limited by this purely functional communication, communication designed to provide no recognition whatsoever of really the humanity of either party, you know, the Indian servant to the English, the Indian servant is there simply to be commanded, while the English person, and we have to speculate here because Cohn does not look at a lot of native sources, I don't know whether he didn't have them available to him, or he was just more concerned with the mindset of the English as, you know, the folks who were causing so many of the problems here. But in any event, we have to kind of imagine the Indian, the Indian folks looking at the English in this odd notion that they're sort of all elevated to this ethereal quote-unquote we, the, that, you know, as they said in the quote, every, uh, everything your intention should be expressed in that personal plural pronoun, meaning we want this, we want our tea, we want our our afternoon snack or whatever other idiotic thing, as if their desire for a cocktail was the will of the entire empire embodied. In essence, you know, in looking at all this, either of these two parties becomes almost purely two-dimensional to the other. Now, if we want to get a bit more insight into the perspective of the Indian folks on, this, on their side of this equation of, of this uh, completely stilted and idiotic kind of communication setup that happened as a consequence of the, the English activity in India. We can actually look, I, I just stumbled on this this morning. I've been rereading a lot of Frantz Fanon. And Fanon is, I mean, certainly the, one of the great philosophers thinking about what happens in the wake of imperialism what happens to, uh, to the people who were subject to it, what happens even to the people who enacted it. So certainly very relevant to everything we're talking about here. But he talks uh, in a, uh, an essay on the Algerian Revolution, he talks a lot about the relationship between the Algerian people and this, the French language itself. And as only Fanon could, because he's such a fantastic writer, uh, he, he, he gives a quick description of what French seemed to, to mean to the, the, the people of Algeria. Quote, the French language, language of occupation, a vehicle of the oppressing power, seemed doomed for eternity to judge the Algerian in a pejorative way. Every French expression referring to the Algerian had a humiliating content. Every French speech heard was an order or a threat or an insult. The contact between the Algerian and the European is defined by these three spheres. 
And in that essay, he goes on to talk about how the French language was ultimately used by the Algerian resistance to uh, broadcast the, their own uh, military activities throughout the country. So when that happened, of course, the relationship to French very much changed for the people of Algeria because suddenly the signification of the language was entirely different than it had been when it was purely used to command and to insult. But uh, that was just a, a little aside and a, a just happenstance that I happened to be reading uh, Fanon this morning, and I thought that that quote might give us a little bit of insight. So, And that's where I think we'll draw this to a close. Uh, as to say, I, 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 I didn't really feel like this fit into the main body of the episode. It didn't really, the last episode that was trying to make a very specific point. But as we look at the the myriad uh, insidious and subtle ways that imperialism changes and affects the places that it's that it's being enacted certainly as it affected india and as it affected the indian people this seems well worth taking a few minutes to discuss so thank you as ever for tuning in i'll talk to you next time i'm looking forward to it